Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Securiosity. I am your host, Greg Otto. It's been a while since we last spoke, and you all know the world is a vastly different place. COVID-19 has really uprooted just about every aspect of life, including the cybersecurity world. So forgive us for the delay, but we've had a number of interviews that we had planned to get out to, ready to go, and then our world was flipped upside down. While we are following the news with regards to the pandemic, this episode here is going to highlight one of the stories of the past month that is wild, but had nothing to do with the spread of the coronavirus. Earlier this month, accused Vault 7 leaker Joshua Schulte's trial ended in a stalemate, with a mistrial declared on all but a few of the lesser charges. The trial was fascinating to follow, and it gave the world insight into how the CIA's malware developers work and how much of that process mirrored a normal, everyday workplace. What looked to be a trial about espionage secrets turned into a trial about a squabble between two of those malware developers. Jeff Stone covered the trial for us on CyberScoop, and we talked about how everything played out, how the government couldn't get a guilty verdict, and what happens from here on out. Okay, joining me now, associate editor for CyberScoop, Jeff Stone. Uh, Jeff, some wild times we're living in right now, but uh, let's take it back to uh, a case that partially concluded, I guess we could say, before uh, the pandemic went into uh, full effect here. The Vault 7 case, we saw a couple of weeks ago, a verdict was reached. Uh, talk to us about uh, the outcome, the mistrial, how we got here, and where we're headed. <laughs> so this case is just getting started again. Yes, there was a mistrial earlier this month. Uh, in the case of Joshua Schulte, uh, for anyone listening who who is not familiar or is overwhelmed by information right now, Schulte is the former CIA developer who is accused of leaking information to WikiLeaks back in 2016 regarding classified U.S. government essentially hacking tools about how to break into mobile operating systems and how to spy on foreign espionage targets through devices like smart TVs. The, the status of the trial now is, is he was found, uh, uh, well, it was not found not guilty, certainly, but, but there was a mistrial due to a jury deadlock on some of the most serious charges. What was he actually found guilty of? He was found guilty, uh, If I'm, I don't have it in front of me now, but if I remember it correctly, he was found guilty of making false statements to investigators and contempt of court. I, in fact, I know that's correct. The, the two most minor charges, whereas he was facing um, certainly the rest of his life in jail for uh, charges like stealing uh, national defense information and essentially making that available to the public. But before, under the charges that he was found guilty of, um, to give you an idea of how minor they are, he... Um, has already served more time than he would be eligible for under those under those charges that he was just found guilty of. So let's talk a little bit more about the hacking tools, just only because I feel like we've talked a lot about the smart TV parts of things, but this was a really big cache of hacking tools. I believe this has been described as the biggest CIA leak in history, right? I mean, we were talking an arsenal of tools that could have hit a wide range of operating systems across the world. That's correct. Uh, and, and the reason that it's significant is because 
Um, before WikiLeaks made so much of this information available to the public um, in March 2017, um, there was kind of a suspicion, especially after uh, the Edward Snowden leaks, that uh, the CIA and other agencies in the U.S. intelligence community were developing some of their own offensive cyber weapons. But we just didn't really know the extent to which uh, they apparently were doing it. So to be very specific, there are files in here dated from 2013 through 2016. You mentioned the smart TVs, but there is um, hacking tools into how to break into uh, technology in smart cars, for instance. Uh, browsers like Chrome and uh, Mozilla Firefox. Like I said, Apple iOS, Google Android devices, desktop operating systems like uh, Mac OS and Linux and um, some of the Microsoft Windows stuff. So so it's it's really an entire early generation of CIA hacking tools. It, to the extent to which this affected the CIA is, is uh, difficult to ascertain because of the classified nature of everything here, but certainly... Uh, when this leak went public, it burned um, um, some operations that were that were in effect right up until that day. To kind of put into effect how shocking it was that we are at this point right now and that this was a mistrial, let's talk about the noise around Schulte going into this trial. This was not just your average government worker. Let's review the long checkered history of Josh here. Where to begin? Um, yes, I mean so. So certainly, um, um, the narrative around Schulte heading into this trial, I, I think the expectation was that he would be found guilty because of the power of the CIA in this case, and certainly because of Schulte's own alleged behavior. So, to to very briefly recap it, um, he uh, left the CIA in 2016, I believe, and he went on to work as an engineer in New York City at Bloomberg. When the Vault 7 tools were made public by WikiLeaks in March 2017, it didn't take long, apparently, for him to be identified as a suspect. FBI raided his home, and um, according to investigators, they found a huge trove of child pornography in his residence in New York City. He was incarcerated on charges related to child pornography, and then he was hit again uh, in 2018 with more charges pertaining to releasing some of these these hacking tools. After he was arrested, he was uh, sent to jail at the Metropolitan Correctional Center in downtown Manhattan. And he was accused again of, of smuggling cell phones into the jail. And he was apparently caught on video and on audio trying to transmit more information um, uh, to the public, apparently uh, actually the information that the prosecution had to share with the defense under the terms of of discovery pre-trial. So it's been it's been quite a case even before the trial started. He he certainly uh some would say was not behaving like uh uh an innocent man. I mean there's been some very public public allegations that he have, may have been struggling from isolation, the the results of isolation while he was behind bars. Leading up to the trial, there was some news around him and his mental state that you brought up, particularly around the fact that he tried to sue the government for just an astronomical amount of money. I completely forgot about that, which, which speaks to the, the <laughs> craziness of this case. Yes, he's, so he's, he sued um, the Department of Justice 
for uh, seeking $50 billion in lost wages. The substance of the suit was that because he has a brain along the lines of uh, a Steve Jobs or a Mark Zuckerberg, technological gurus of the past uh, generation in Silicon Valley, his incarceration at the hands of the U.S. government cost Schulte just obscene amounts of wealth, uh, and he and he was uh, expecting that to to go through to court. Now that suit, we should say, was delayed pending the resolution of his criminal trial, which um, is going to have to wait even longer. But I, I don't think anyone is taking that too seriously. So okay, so we have somebody that clearly isn't on the level, is very combative, is not going to be just your normal, everyday, run-of-the-mill person going into this trial. And there was about three weeks of testimony in this trial. And I would love to know, because I know you were following it, I were following it, paint us a picture of uh, what the testimony is like and what the scene really was. I mean, we're talking about CIA malware developers, but we're not talking about people in some big bunker, right? Like we're talking something that looks more like a scene out of Silicon Valley on HBO than it does out of 24. Uh, Silicon Valley, the the HBO show is an apt comparison. It sounds a lot like a frat house, to be honest with you. These guys were um, pretty open on the stand about the way that they would mess up each other's desks, for instance, or get into Nerf gun fights or uh, really just try to haze and harass each other in ways that dudes do, uh, particularly when it comes to like, like sports teams. <laughs> Guys being dudes. Yeah, pretty much. Uh, they, they fit the stereotype on that for sure. The difference with Schulte is that um, some of these witnesses who he worked with during his time at the agency told the court that even in that environment, he took it to another level. So he was called the nuclear option. Some of these guys uh, referred to him at work as a badass because if they were about to be assigned a project that they didn't want to deal with, uh, according to one to one witness's testimony, they would send Schulte in and he would shout or yell or cause a scene in a way that was almost uh, almost sounded like it was set up to get the entire team out of doing a task that they might otherwise had to do because uh, whoever was assigning Uh, that responsibility didn't want to deal with this guy. It was less detail in court about the development of of malicious software tools compared to this, this environment where um, that certain personality type certainly thrived. How was it structured from a defense standpoint? How did uh, the defense turn around and say, look, even though this was the atmosphere Here's why that atmosphere shows that Schulte really wasn't responsible for these crimes. The defense from the start um, described Schulte as a pain in the ass to work with, I believe, uh, his lead defense attorney said in her opening statement. So Um, she didn't even like him. Oh, no, certainly not. But what she did do, certainly effectively, at least in, in this trial, is point to evidence that the CIA network... Um, was was so insecure that um, the CIA and the investigators who were trying to suss out who was behind this leak couldn't have could not have effectively determined who it was. And Schulte 
his reputation preceded him, according to the defense, and um, he kind of became a convenient fall guy. Some of the forensics presented by the prosecution, I think, were were presented in a way that was not understandable to the jury. So, what type of forensics are we talking about? Here? He was essentially had spent an hour um, collecting information, according to the prosecution, that he should not have ha- had access to. So, after a series of uh, disputes, primarily with one other employee, but there was a number of employees involved, um, he had his access two agency hacking tools revoked. He then tried to restore that access. And when he did, uh, again, according to the prosecution, he collected a a trove of information about these hacking tools that he should not have had and um, essentially walked away with it. Now, due to the nature of of the forensic information and um, just the structure of court, the way that the attorneys have to set up the evidence that they're pointing to, it was very confusing. Even as someone who has been writing about this case for, um, I guess, more than a year now, it was difficult to follow. And I think that simply they they certainly lost the jury. They didn't convince everyone in the way that they might have expected. Yeah, one of the big things from the prosecution that I saw as well from reading through the testimony was they talked about this incident with one of his co-workers, this guy named Emil. And uh, I would like you to talk about that a little bit, and then uh, we can jump into how long they tended to harp on this. I feel like they talked about this Emil incident for two-thirds of the trial, and it really didn't do them any favors. What you're saying uh, is a great example of the way that this this trial really was about a workplace dispute rather than about this kind of sensational, um, sexy headlines around CIA hacking tools being made public by an organization like WikiLeaks. Schulte worked for uh, a unit in the CIA called the Engineering Development Group, which is uh, dedicated, again, to bu- building offensive hacking tools. Um, he worked on a team called Drifting Deadline, which was a component of a larger project called Brutal Kangaroo. So you can start to see already how this gets confusing. On his small team was a guy um, who we know as Emil. Exactly what happened to kind of begin this feud, I I think is still unclear. But according to some of the witnesses, Schulte behaved, uh, used all kinds of racist language, was certainly abusive toward um, uh, this, this younger colleague, uh, according to their testimony, and um, it resulted in uh, Schulte claiming to CIA higher-ups that Emil had threatened to kill him. So other members of, of the CIA team who they worked with uh, testified that they didn't essentially believe this for a second, and they were confused as to why Schulte would make such an allegation. It seems to be combined with his his admittedly difficult personality. There's a lot of pressure to get some of these things done. Schulte and Emil as a team seem to be falling behind. And, and I'm not sure, frankly, if the pressure got to them or or this kind of friendly, bro, aggressive hazing turned into something much more ugly, but but uh, it resulted in them going to going to court outside of the agency. The CIA leadership had to separate them. Uh, it became really ugly. There was another person on that team who gave testimony. I believe he was a witness, this guy known as Michael. 
let's talk about this testimony because I believe it really scored points for the defense when it came time to decide Schulte's fate. What, who was Michael and how did he play into all of this? Because I feel like uh, people paying attention to this case need to understand that this was probably what helped tipped things to where we are now with the mistrial. That's right. It, it, that's my impression as well. So combined with the prosecution being confusing in the way that, the pre, that they presented a lot of this really technical forensic evidence, Michael also uh, was a witness. He worked with Schulte and Emil. And uh, during the investigation prior to the trial, Michael had refused to cooperate with uh, investigators at the CIA. And the prosecution... Um, essentially sat on this information for a number of months, and they did not reveal to the defense that Michael uh, had been placed on administrative leave by the CIA until the night before he testified at trial earlier this month. So the defense used this um, lack of transparency by the prosecution to suggest that the prosecution maybe wasn't being more transparent about Michael's employment status at the agency because they had doubts about Schulte's involvement in stealing the information that was later published by WikiLeaks. And look, that they're, they're, that worked on the jury. Uh, they had sent a note to the judge uh, during their deliberations at one point indicating they were considering the idea that someone else uh, might have done this if, if we're reading the tea leaves correctly. So we have a mistrial. What's next? What's next? Um, this this is where this this strange, sensational CIA trial intersects with the real world. Uh, there had been scheduled for March 26th a status hearing uh, to go over what had happened in the trial and essentially what to do next. I think everyone watching this expects the prosecution to argue in favor of another trial, this being the uh, largest leak in CIA history, and the defense is going to... I think it's safe to say, raised some more concerns about the way Michael's uh, employment status was communicated to them during the trial. Now, the reason this was delayed, or it won't be a surprise, is is because of concerns about the coronavirus, um, which is essentially uh, starting to affect every facet of life in, in New York City, where this trial is set to begin. I expect this to go to trial again. Uh, the timing uh, it could be in a month. It could be in uh, eight months. It, it's it's just hard to know. But I don't think that this conversation is going to sound too much different um, because covering this trial, uh, it was the same courthouse where the Silk Road case went to trial. Okay. Instance. And in that case, um, police arrested Ross Ulbricht uh, who is the the accused founder of this kind of dark net website where drugs and hacking tools were were made available? They arrested him right in front of his computer. They had a smoking gun that I think that the CIA and the investigators and the prosecution in this case don't have. Uh, if they do, they haven't made it public. So I expect this conversation to essentially repeat itself over the next year as as this. If, if, in fact, this trial is, is set to go. Yeah, uh, that was going to be my next question. Look, y you and I uh, paid attention to this pretty heavily. We read through the testimony, and let's talk to the listeners about our opinions on this case. You bring up a good point here with the, the CIA and the lack of evidence. I get the sense that this is what the government has. 
as far as what we saw on this trial. I don't see any new evidence coming out, and I don't think right. that the jury saw anything that is going to be damning for Schulte moving forward. Anything off the top of your head outside of new evidence, do you think is going to change a jury's opinion? I think that they're going to have to change the way that they present the forensic evidence to the jury. If you're a prosecutor, um, painting Schulte is, as a difficult employee is certainly going to be a um, strong component of your case because if he, in fact, uh, stole this information and sent it to WikiLeaks, as they allege, resentment and anger with your superiors and frustration with um I think a perceived lack of recognition will be um, a strong circumstantial uh, motivating factor. But they again, the 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 Silk Road example uh, is, is one case where where prosecutors essentially had a smoking gun with the operator of that market behind a computer. Um, there's another trial that's going on in San Francisco right now uh, about his name is Yevgeny Nikulin. And he is uh, an accused hacker. This is a completely unrelated trial. But already in that case, um, the judge has has flat out said to the prosecution, um, I hope you have a magic witness who can tie this together because I thought you had more, right? I mean, we're seeing now as more of these technical cases go to trial, um, that may be an IP address or or um, the time that a certain computer accessed certain files may not be enough to convince people. You uh, use that, that phrase, convince people. I just got the sense reading through the testimony this time around, the only thing that the government really convinced the jury of was that Josh Schulte was the worst. <laughs> I mean, he really was just a pain in the ass. He sounded like he was obstinate. He was uh, insubordinate. But that in of itself didn't show that he committed any crime. And I kept reading through the, the testimony and a uh, big shout out to uh, Alexa O'Brien uh, for getting the transcripts and for the Calix Institute and uh, Patrick over at Risky Business for uh, fronting the costs for that so that we could keep up with this uh, relatively in real time. Uh, it just seemed like reading through the daily testimony that the government really kept harping on, yeah, well, this guy's an asshole and he got into a fight with his coworkers and he reset some uh, virtual machines and those same virtual machines were what's popped up on WikiLeaks. And clearly that's all the evidence that we have. So please find guilty. And it was like, whoa, whoa, wait, uh, you guys don't have anything else? Like the, the government had so much forensic evidence here that I was really shocked that we did not see that smoking gun at all. I kept waiting for it and waiting for it and waiting for it. And it just never came. So I, I said to myself before this went to deliberations that I would not be surprised looking at it through the lens of just normal people who are not in this world at all, have no idea what a virtual machine is, has no idea that the CIA even does this type of stuff. How would they view this trial? And I, I'm i not surprised that we had the outcome that we did. To that, I would just add that you could see Schulte through this entire trial. I mean, I, I think the government obviously made a strong case that he is obstinate and uh, a pain in the neck, to put it lightly. But you could see through the trial him 
um, scoffing at evidence or shaking his head at a certain argument. Frankly, they don't need to try that hard to paint him as someone who is a pain in the ass. Um, the question that comes into play during the next trial, um, there are two things that, that come to mind. Um, when you are a prosecutor, for instance, you, especially in the Southern District of New York, which is a high-profile, high-visibility position, um, this is the kind of case that you can make your career on. So the prosecution did not convict him in this case. I can't uh, imagine that they don't make some kind of change to address uh, whatever the uncertainty was uh, here for the jury. If, and assuming there is a, another trial here, there are other factors at play that we need to also um, keep in mind about the jurors. So um, WikiLeaks and the CIA and um, all everything that's wrapped up in all of that, feelings about the U.S. intelligence community, feelings about the 2016 breach of the Democratic National Committee. These are the things that are playing in the mind of a juror as they are hearing this trial. Uh, for instance, we have heard before the, the initial trial here began, we heard some dispute over whether the government or whether the defense should be able to use words like leaker or whistleblower, which have all kinds of political connotations. It's hard to know how much that played uh, into deliberations here, but I, I would, um, I'm certainly curious if this goes to court again, whether they change some of their approach to trying to determine how a juror may be predisposed to think about some of these issues. Great. And whenever this does go to trial, I know that, Jeff, you will be on top of it. So uh, thanks for joining us and talking us through what exactly went down with the Vault 7 case. Cool. Thank you. So the case was supposed to reconvene on March 26th in order to figure out next steps, but obviously the pandemic has pushed that into the unknown. When this case resumes, Jeff and CyberScoop will continue to follow it. That's all for this week. We'll be back soon with some interviews we conducted at RSA. We covered everything from fraud to disinformation to threat intelligence. Some really cool stuff coming up in the coming weeks. But until then, stay safe, wash your hands, stay inside, flatten the curve, take care of one another, and as always... Stay curious.